Welcome to season four of the Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, professor of engineering education in the College of Engineering at Purdue University. In Research Briefs, we'll speak with engineering education researchers about what their lives are like, what they are finding out, and how their research is being used. My guest today is Dr. Ruth Wirtz, Assistant Professor of General Engineering at Valparaiso University in Valparaiso, Indiana. Ruth's PhD dissertation focused on online education, particularly examining the question, how do you design online instruction to support and engage a community of learners? As COVID-19 has forced so many of us to develop our online teaching skills, speaking with Ruth today is particularly timely. So Ruth, welcome to Research Briefs. Well, thank you, Ruth. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. So I've been lucky enough to know you for quite a while and even um, work with you on several projects. And uh, we get to be the Ruth and Ruth team. (laughs) and say that people cannot be ruthless if they're working with us. Um, but not all of our listeners as, are as lucky as I am to, uh, to know you and your background. So could you provide some context for our listeners about particularly how you came to research online learning? Sure, sure. Um, so that, that kind of came through a windy, twisty path, as most of our, of our research endeavors do. Um, kind of started back with um, really my undergrad education. Like when I left undergrad, I kind of had this, I'm going to go out and have this long career as a geotechnical engineer. And at the end of that, then I'm going to teach. Um, and that, of course, got disrupted very shortly. <laughs> um, I think I was um, out in my geotech job for a grand total of about a year before I got this call out of the blue from somebody from IPFW saying, hey, Ruth, we have this soil mechanics class that we need somebody to teach. Um, we had a um, somebody leave unexpectedly and the class starts next week. Can you do it? Um, so so we, should let, we should let people know that IPFW is yes. Indiana, Purdue, Fort, Fort Wayne. Wayne. Right. Yes. Okay. Right. Um, and so that, that really just upended that I'm going to have this long career as a geotechnical engineer. That was no more. Um, I knew that the, the career trajectory was heading in the direction of, of full-time education. Um, I stayed at Patriot Engineering, which is where I was working at the time, for another four years after that, five years after that, um, long enough to get my professional engineering license. That was kind of like on my to-do list Mm -hmm. before I went into this educational track. Um, And so during that time, it's like whatever I can do out in the world to gain teaching experience, I'm going to seek it out and I'm going to do it until somebody won't let me anymore. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So the first thing I did uh, right after I got my PE license is I started working for a company called School of PE. Um, And at the time, all of their courses were, uh, you know, at airport hotels over the weekends. And very shortly after I joined that company, they started to filter in online courses because not everybody lives within, you know, an hour of an airport hotel. So, and, um, and so this was a preparation, uh, like a preparation course yes. for the professional engineers exam, right? 
It is right. Yes. So it's a, a very targeted audience. These mm-hmm. people have paid money to be there and they are very captive. So that mm-hmm. that's important for that context, right? It kind of deals with the student motivation part, but the way this course, these online courses were run is it was me talking over a PowerPoint slide pretty much. I mean, there were examples and things like that in there. It wasn't just a PowerPoint slide that was completely static, but I did not see them. They did not see me. It was just my voice and a chat window. So even with the participants, their video cameras were disabled, their microphones were disabled. So it was just me in a chat window. Um, and the class sizes were usually somewhere like 95 to 105 people wow. in that neighborhood. Um, so the fact that they were all there for a reason, they all opted in to that environment and the content was immediately applicable. Like they were gonna take that exam within six weeks. Um, if not closer. So it's like, nope, they want their attention is focused. Um, but even with that, that I stopped teaching there um, in 2014. To this day, I still get LinkedIn messages from students in those courses that, hey, I just got a promotion and hey, thank you for this. And it's like, I, I haven't seen you in seven years. <laughs> Um, so that was that was really my first dip into online education, and it was it was largely positive. It wasn't without its quirks and its you know whatever. Um, I had I found that I was more drained at the end of the day when I taught online because I didn't get that human feedback that mm-hmm. I got when I was in the mm-hmm. in person classes. But um, I don't think the the learning suffered much. Um, at least not from what I could tell. And I never got emails from my students from my hotel classes. So I don't know. But you did from the online. Yeah. Yeah. So intriguing, isn't it? I still haven't been able to explain that one. Um, Then the next big, big dip into into online, the online space was with Norwich University. So shortly after I got my master's degree, again, still in the, I'm trying to find teaching experience wherever I can find it. um, I applied to their master's of civil engineering online program. And this was radically unique at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So still at the time, engineering as a whole is just openly rejecting the idea that online learning can provide the quality of education um, that they're accustomed to. And so this program was really unique. Uh, And I think the only other, it was accredited um, as a master's program, so not ABET. Um, And I don't remember what the accrediting body was. But uh, I think the only other like accredited program on par with it was maybe at the University of South Dakota at the time. So they were like, you could count on like two or three fingers. Um, And with that, their premise was they had residency weeks where students were on campus for a very short window. Um, Geotech was the only track that had a pre week as well as a residency week at the end. Everybody else just had their residency week at the end. Um, And the rest of it was totally online. Um, and they were, they were rigorous programs. It was not like, oh, we're, we're just going to have you 
think about these things, but not actually do any of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was, it was, that was enlightening. Um, and given the work that I was doing in my PhD at the time, I was quickly tapped as the, okay, you seem to kind of get the, the frameworks behind these. Can you work with our other faculty? and do professional development and how to design online courses. And so it kind of pushed me into the, to the professional development space. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of the, the research that I did took, took hold. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good lead in to say a bit now you're, you're in uh, your PhD, which is in engineering education mm -hmm. and you're have all this experience with um, online learning, you are then trying to find frameworks to figure out how to place your research in a framework. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And there, there was kind of this um, culmination of experiences that I think if they had happened in a different way, things might not have clicked the way they did, but I was in... Um, our CAP class at the same time I was in engineering thinking at the same time that I was in this um, education course on distance education mm -hmm. frameworks and theories. And so I was getting exposed to um, like the CAP backward design approach at the same time as how people learn at the same time as this community of inquiry framework. <laughs> And at a high level, it's like, these are all the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're all saying the same thing in different ways and by different people, but the, the overall big picture is all the same. And that's mm -hmm. that uh, the really um, high quality, deep learning experience is a function of cognition and social interaction and good facilitation and a supportive learning environment. And mm -hmm. all of those things have to come together in order for not necessarily to guarantee learning because nothing can do that, but um, it's really, that's where the sweet spot is. Mm -hmm. Now I know in the communi community of inquiry, mm -hmm. some of the things that you were talking about, like the cognitive environment, they have a, particular terms for that. Yes, they do. Um, and so maybe you could introduce those terms and then um, explain what they are. Yeah. So um, in the community of inquiry, they do have specific terms for each of those little kind of levers, if you will. They call them presences. Um, and so teaching presence is really kind of capturing the um, organization and facilitation of the other presences. And I think that part gets lost a little bit mm -hmm. when people talk about it at a high level, but it's how are social activities directed and how are cognitive activities directed to whatever the end goal of that course is. And that's mm -hmm. really what the teaching presence is, is trying to capture. The social presence is then interpersonal relationships. Um, how are students uh, interacting with each other and other actors within the learning environment? Um, and then cognitive presence is a learning cycle. <laughs> Um, is the best I can describe it. So if anybody's familiar with Kolb's experiential cycle, that's probably the more popular 
um, idea out there right now. Um, it's kind of like that, but it's, it's actually based on Dewey's practical inquiry model, which is kind of the same, same ideas. You have that spark and then you go explore, um, you bring in information and eventually you have to resolve any new information with, with prior ideas. So I believe what you did then is you wanted to see quantitatively how these different presences were related and what their relationships were to each other. Is, is that correct? It is. And what really drew me in to the community of inquiry at the time was there was a very relevant argument happening around this uh, framework. So there's the purists who say community of inquiry is the intersection of these three independent presences, teaching presence, social presence, cognitive presence. Then there's the other, there's some other people out there um, who say, wait a minute, there's a puzzle piece missing. There's something not, not here yet. And that usually kind of circles around student characteristics. And so at the time, Peter Shea had just published um, a series of papers, so between like 2010, 2012, uh, on learning presence. And so learning presence was capturing student regulation of, so those learning characteristics of motivation, behaviors. Um, when we talk about self-regulation on a large scale, a lot of times intellectual development is thrown in the mix as well, although a lot of his measures did not capture that. But when he talks about it, there's a little bit of that intellectual development piece there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, it was really, really timely that, A, there's this argument that's happening that I think I can contribute to. B, engineering is saying, no, online education isn't, doesn't fit here. When I had evidence to the contrary that said, actually, I, I do think it's, it does. I think it can. Um, if we reimagine it a little bit. And so it felt like a, a good problem to work on. Mm -hmm. I guess. <laughs> and there are um, measures that measure these different presences. Yes. So there's, there's a lot of different things, like a, in the broad body of literature of community of inquiry, there's a lot of different measures out there, um, including a lot of content analysis and things like that. I didn't do that. Um, so there is one instrument called the uh, Community of Inquiry Survey. It came out in like 2005, around that time, um, has been validated by many studies. And that is kind of like the go-to quantitative instrument. Um, it is a Likert scale, self-reported. You give this to a student, a student reports their perception of these different things. So I think it's like a, I'm not gonna remember how many items are on it, 30 something, 37 maybe sounds right. Um, but as far as I know, that instrument has been largely unchanged since its introduction mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. 2005. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with my dissertation work was not only challenge the idea of learning presence um, and that it does in fact fit as another interrelated presence within the overall framework, but also use an instrument that includes 
measurement of self-regulation. So kind of taking this existing community of inquiry survey and extending it to include the student characteristics that the community is kind of like, no, student characteristics belong here. So was that um, a separate instrument that you used to collect that data about the learner? Or was, or was that part of the community of inquiry survey? Yeah, so I did wind up, I used a subset of questions from the community of inquiry survey because it, again, it's validated and it has all the things, all the bells and whistles and it, there's a, a huge body of literature behind it. Um, and then I used other instruments um, to draw on the three kind of tenets of self-regulation that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be specific behaviors. Um, and that came from like the online survey of self-regulation, OLSQ. Um, and then some motivational things came from um, Pinterest's uh, instrument that is well known and, and validated. And then I took stuff from Perry's work, mm -hmm. intellectual development piece. And, and how many students were you able to have fill out the, these surveys? An embarrassingly small number. It was like a couple hundred, which for a survey of that size, I, I would have rather had a couple thousand. But sure. A couple hundred worked. Mm hmm. So um, one of the, I, I went down, oh gosh, I went down the, the factor analysis rabbit hole and I went deep. <laughs> it was so much fun. <laughs> but um, so what I wound up doing was um, layers upon layers upon layers of different analyses. So I never really broke the system until I did. But <laughs> Um, I started with like just confirmatory models of like, I'm just going to take this instrument and I'm just going to measure teaching presence with it. And I'm going to see if what I get here matches what prior literature was telling mm -hmm, me I should get. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, check that box. Okay, now I'm going to try the next one. Okay, check that box. Um, and so I did just a measurement thing just to make sure that the survey kind of gets at the same mm -hmm. levels of what prior literature is telling me I should see. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went and started playing around with operational models, which is very different than the theoretical model, which is just that Venn diagram that you see. Like if you mm -hmm. Google community of inquiry, you see the really pretty Venn diagram. Um, and the Venn diagram is cool, but it doesn't tell us how any of these presences are related or doesn't let us use them as levers to um, really influence different pieces of, of those relationships. And so the operational models, there were three that had been introduced in the literature at the time I started my, my dissertation. So Ruth, you've talked about operational models. Maybe some of the listeners would like to know a little bit more about that. Sure. Okay. So when, when I talk about operational models, we're switching from um, a conceptual understanding of these three presences to something that is more quantitative in nature um, and is usually based in uh, association. 
Um, and so causal path analysis is essentially what I was doing. And that word causal is very misleading because um, it does not mean causation. It means as a researcher, I was making assumptions about the predictability of one presence based on the measurement of another. Okay, so um, there was one question um, that I got from a reviewer once upon a time that was really like one of the most intelligent questions I've, I've heard about why the arrangement of these operational models are what they are. Um, and that kind of stemmed from the fact that in the theoretical model, conceptual understanding is a student's perception of their own kind of learning process. When we um, then transition to the operational model and have cognitive presence as a dependent variable, what we're saying is that's now an outcome. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a little bit of confusion about, wait a minute, this was a student perception. How is it now an outcome? Mm -hmm. um, and that is very much about proximity. Um, so that's a really important concept when it comes to the causal path analysis and how we arrange all of those little, little bubbles. And those bubbles are just latent concepts that are not directly measured, but we're saying that variation in this one concept can predict variation in another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we have to put one on the independent variable side and we have to put another on a dependent variable side and where everything else goes is kind of up in the air. Uh -huh, we can uh -huh. have several independent variables that are related. We can have several independent variables that are not related. We can have mediators somewhere in the middle. Um, and so that's where it was like, I got to play. Mm -hmm. <laughs> got to play a lot. So I started with those operational models that were already um, presented in prior literature, just absent of learning presence and said, okay, well, what would these look like with learning presence in the, in the mix? Um, and so I went with a simple explanatory model, meaning um, teaching presence, social presence, and learning presence all are related predictors of cognitive presence. So I'm situating cognitive presence as the outcome because it is closest to the cognitive outcomes that we expect our students to produce not because it is but just because it's close to yeah yeah it make that makes sense good good um and so in that model that was really really exciting because in that simple explanatory model learning presence actually had the strongest direct effect on cognitive presence hmm interesting so it was like validation that this belongs here. This is uh -huh. explaining part of this. And when it's absent, we're not explaining something that should be explained or can be explained. Um, I didn't stick with that as the final model because it's not, it's not very, uh, like I, I still don't really understand the levers. Uh -huh. issue. I still don't know what to vary on one side to get an outcome that I want on another side. Right. Um, and so then in the in the literature, once learning presence was introduced, there were two different models. So there was a social presence as mediator. 
Okay. And for the, the people who are endlessly confused by mediation versus moderation. Which is, I'm one of them. <laughs> I, I still have to remind myself, so <laughs> it's fine. But the, the mediator is the because of variable. So a relationship exists between um, variable A and variable B because of variable C is in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the social presence as mediator model, when that happened, I kind of went and broke it all apart and said, okay, I'm going to test these individually. So what does the social presence mediate learning presence to cognitive presence? Does social presence mediate teaching presence to cognitive presence? So I did those individually first and they were both significant right so it's like if i left it there it's like okay everybody's happy the models worked there's reason to say why that would happen there's not it's not absent of of theoretical grounding social presence would mediate uh self-regulation there's reasons to think that social presence would mediate teaching presence when things fell apart was when i put everything in the model together so i had learning presence and teaching presence as two related independent variables, both being mediated by social presence on its link to cognitive presence. And when I did that, all of a sudden the direct effect, so that that linkage between teaching presence and social presence went away. The next thing I did was try to do all four of those concepts in the same model. And that's where things broke down. Um, So I had teaching presence and learning presence as two related independent variables. That is a fundamental assumption of community of inquiry is that all of the factors are interrelated, right? So then I had social presence still as the mediator of both of those in their uh, connection to, to cognitive presence. So both links are going through social presence to get to cognitive presence. Um, And when I did that, all of a sudden, the direct effect or that link between teaching presence and social presence went away. There was no significant direct effect there, which is a violation of of the fundamental assumption that everything is interrelated. Um, And it just doesn't make sense. Why would all of a sudden teaching presence not be related to social presence? Um, And so that one kind of went to the wayside for me. It's like, no, something's not not right here. Um, And then the other model was situating learning presence as a moderator. So again, the moderator is the depends on variable. Um, And in this one, the moderating variable is kind of like the odd man out a little bit where the moderator will increase or decrease the relationship of something, um, but it's not embedded in the model itself. And so this was not my favorite just on the fact that it's outside of the relationships of all three. Um, But when I went in and tested um, learning presence as a moderator, so what that means is when learning presence is low, do the relationships between teaching presence and cognitive presence and social presence and cognitive or uh, cognitive presence, do they change? versus when learning presence is high, do those relationships change, right? So is is the lowness or highness of that moderating variable affecting the strength of of the relationships of the other three? 
Um, and with that one, it, it also broke down in, in certain places. So when learning presence was, was high, a lot of the other effects went away. So because the learning presence, again, is looking at characteristics of the learner, like their motivation and self-regulation and things, right? Mm -hmm. I guess that would make sense that depending on the learner being very motivated and self-regulated, that the other variables would differ. Am I reading this correctly or am, you, am I you really are. confused? Um, and so basically what that says is when learning presence is high, then that learner doesn't rely so much on teaching presence um, or social presence. They can get to the cognitive presence without meeting those, those factors so much. When learning presence is low, those dependencies come out a lot more. So in this way, it would, what I'm seeing is that as one is designing an online class, the more you feel your learners are maybe just maturationally not as advanced, maybe they're younger students or, mm -hmm. um, or maybe their motivation isn't as high, that then you really have to think about how you're going to make things happen in the class. Right. And with, you just, with that teaching presence, right? Yeah. You just hit on, on those three pieces of learning presence, the behaviors, how do they, how do they regulate their behavior, their intellectual development, which is a, a maturity mm -hmm. piece, not necessarily dictated by age, but mm -hmm. not necessarily. Probably, <laughs> probably I mean, not. that's, that's There's certainly a, a factor. Yes. <laughs> Right. Um, yes. But that, I mean, when you think about gut instinct of an instructor, uh, if you're teaching the same content, you have the same textbook, you're going to teach that differently to a group of 18 year olds than you are to non-traditional 45 year olds. Mm -hmm. Why? Right. And it comes yeah. down to the motivation piece. The 45-year-olds are there for a very different reason than mm -hmm. the 18-year-olds are. Mm -hmm. uh, their maturity levels are very different. Their competing life commitments are very different, which is going to affect how they behave. So learning presence is a thing <laughs> and mm -hmm. it affects how we see it. Um, what I didn't like about the moderator model is there, there still isn't that lever piece. I still don't know how me as a teacher who has the closest proximity to teaching presence can then operationalize learning presence as a tool to get to mm -hmm. cognitive presence. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the aha moment came in. Um, and my favorite part of this aha moment is that it happened with you in Starbucks. <laughs> where else? <laughs> where where else, else would we be? That have happened? <laughs> <laughs> I can remember going through my dissertation slides being like, dull, dull, boring, boring, wait a minute, I have it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and so what, what really struck me as is teaching presence needs to be the independent variable. And I say the independent variable because it is by proximity, the thing closest to the instructor, the thing that is closest to my control, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I can, to the, to the extent possible, control organization, 
of, mm -hmm. of class structure. I can control facilitation of class structure. Can't control students' perception of it necessarily, but I can control the pieces that I right. want to play. Right. 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 I can't control social presence, at least not as well. Mm -hmm. I absolutely cannot control learning presence, mm -hmm. right? So that brings up the case of proximity. So what I landed on was a co-mediated model. Teaching presence is the independent variable. Cognitive presence is still the dependent variable with both learning presence and social presence in the middle somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so the last decision is, well, how do they fit together? Because um, if you know anything about path analysis, everything has to have an arrow and you only get an arrowhead on one side, mm -hmm. right? So I have to draw a line between learning presence and social presence. And one of those has to have an arrowhead and one of them doesn't. Mm -hmm. Right. So I situate learning presence closer to cognitive presence because of that, that early model I did way back when that says learning presence has the strongest direct effect to cognitive presence and therefore its proximity is closest to cognitive mm -hmm. presence. Mm -hmm. And then I have social presence is the other thing that I have the most control over as an instructor. So that one gets pushed a little closer to the teaching presence. And so now I have this co-mediated model where as an instructor, I understand my levers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what I have the most control over and what I have the least control over. So one thing that I think is exciting as I'm thinking about, you know, looking at this and what my own takeaway would be is that Yes, you've got this one variable of the the student characteristics, the the mm -hmm. learner characteristics, the learning presence that that resides in the student, and unless you have some way to try to screen people, you you have no control over. Um, and that as you're putting together a course. Most of us, I think, think about how clear it'll be, what'll the organization be, those types of things. But also what's really important is figuring out how you will structure this peer interaction and the what the model calls the social presence. Yeah. Um, and just how important, more important that becomes depending on your learner characteristics. You said something, and I think I might have overstated the no control part, because that's actually not true. Okay. Um, right? Because when we think about learning presence, um, just like any kind of motivational theory, there's not an absolute answer. It's not your capacity mm -hmm. for learning presence. It's what is activated. And we know that motivation will vary with different contexts, vary day to day, things like that. So there is um, the keen three C's comes to mind. So their, their three C's is uh, curiosity, connection, creating value. Mm -hmm. And so that whole framework is about tapping into learning presence, really uh -huh. Uh -huh. getting, drawing out that internal motivation to want to be there. So mm -hmm. I said it's without, it's outside of my control. That was an overstatement. It's not outside of my control, but it is further from my control than other things. Right. Right. And one of the things I think about motivation is you can foster it. Right. There are things you can do certainly to make it more difficult to kind of squelch it. Um, but you can't 
create it. Right. You know, if somebody's desperate not to be motivated, they, <laughs> not, there's nothing yeah. you can do. <laughs> right. But certainly, right. There's, certainly there are ways to foster it and increase yeah. the probability that they're going to be more curious and, mm-hmm. and find value in it. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I see which. Yes, yes. Yeah. I see. So I, I, yeah, I, I wanted to correct that assumption. I was not saying that we can't we can't try to tap into something that's there. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. So I I think I want to end with thinking about like resources that mm-hmm. um, resources and tools and platforms perhaps perhaps that would be useful for people to um, if they're all charged up now about wanting to. <laughs> Um, to learn more about this, things that they could do. Yeah. So if you if you want to learn more about just community of inquiry as a whole, um, there's a, a resource communityofinquiry.org. Um, note it is um, organized by the purists, so there is no mention of learning presence uh, in this. Um, website, but a lot of resources of, if you're just like, wow, how do I develop better social presence? There are resources with kind of easy to follow how-tos. There's Mm -hmm. research articles, things like that. So if you're just trying to get a better sense of what these presences are and how to tap into them, it's Mm -hmm. a great place to start. Um, And I just want to say, in looking at my notes that you provided Community of inquiry is all one word, right? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. It is community of inquiry, all dot, one word, dot yeah, org. Dot org. Okay. Uh, that is also Google searchable. It will mm-hmm. pop up in one of your first, you know, three to five things. Sure. So, the other thing, it's like more um, when I hear people asking for advice, there's almost an edge of panic with it. Mm-hmm of like, I don't know what to do next. Yeah. Um, and so to, to talk a little bit to that, um, the internet right now is absolutely flooded with how to, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you want to go Google how to do something, you can find it. So to keep, keep the nostrils just above the water level a little bit is, mm-hmm. Um, have a framework reference. And what I mean by that is pick your favorite learning framework, whether it is uh, Bloom's taxonomy, Fink's taxonomy, um, the CAT backward design model, whatever you have to keep the fundamental absolute core learning objectives that you need to accomplish in your class front and center. So that way, as soon as you start to feel that panic meter rise, like I can't do all of the things, you go back to those learning objectives and say, what can I do? Um, And then you can use the how to's, you can kind of pick through them a little bit to pick out the relevant bits, but it's a lot easier to just pick out the relevant bits when you know what you're trying to accomplish first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the last part, and this is more of um, a plea to help our students. (laughs) because I am, I am known for going rogue with uh, uh, different platforms. Um, I have had, she introduced too many websites so many times on my course of vows because <laughs> I think all of them are great and there's value in them all, mm-hmm. but now is not the time. Right. With all of our students going on to at least partial, if not fully remote classes, 
across the board and mostly not by choice, now is the time to keep that library as skinny, as small as we can make it. Mm -hmm. So go to your institution, teaching and learning center and see what things do we already have and stick to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really, this is advice for me more than anybody else. I'm just letting you hear it. because I need that lesson more, more than most, but, um, there's a time and a place to go try things. And, uh, we all are going to have to try things that we haven't tried before, but, um, just picking any, any platform because you think it sounds cool is, uh, normally okay, but maybe not, not right now. Not right now. Yeah. Just as we are so stressed out trying to be more streamlined and keep things simple, I think Mm -hmm. is for everything in life right now is, is a, is good advice. And if I could make a shameless plug, um, just to tell the listeners, we are uh, recording this in July, and I believe in September, the which may be before this comes out, I'm not exactly sure when this session will be launched, but um, the uh, Advances in Engineering Education uh, publication which is the, kind of the practitioner's arm of um, ASWE, will be having a special issue on COVID and ways to uh, adapt to it and people's tips for that, which I think could be a good resource. And um, Carl Smith and I are writing a opinion piece on using the content assessment pedagogy, the the CAP framework that you've referenced um, while you're creating your uh, redesigning your remote classes. So those might be something that that would be useful to the listeners if they're looking for for resources. Um, so that's my shameless plug. But I can't leave this, of course, on a shameless <laughs> plug. How tacky would that be? Um, so is there anything else? I want to give you the last word of what you would like to say to the listeners. There, There is, and it's actually something I heard yesterday or two days ago, something like that. Um, but it really sat with me. Um, and there's, there's so many like, oh, you've got lemons, make lemonade, just, you know, embrace the adventure kind of things, which mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't love. I think that really makes light of... Mm-hmm. The very real sense of anxiety that people have entering yeah. into this academic year. But I will say that there is something to mindset. Um, we know from, you know, a lot of study on growth mindset versus fixed mindset that just simply changing your mindset, how dramatically that can change the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think coming into the next academic year, we can we can approach this with a scarcity mindset, which is I don't have enough, mm-hmm. or an abundance mindset of I can't I have enough, I have enough time, I have enough resources, and the way to do that is to keep your focus on the fundamental things, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? If we can keep those front and center, and then approach it with an abundance mindset of I have enough to do these fundamental things. Mm -hmm. Um, We can really change our experience and our own anxiety levels, which will then dramatically or or change how our students experience those same things. Um, 
we know that our, our own mental state can have an effect on how a student experiences our courses. Yes, absolutely. And that is a wonderfully positive way to end. So let's end. Okay. <laughs> and thank you so much, Ruthie. I, uh, I look forward to continuing to see how your research develops and your teaching develops. And I know we're, you and I are going to keep working together. So that, yeah, that will be fun. I'm, okay. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com. Thank you.